Welcome to the New Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia and beyond. Hello and welcome to the New Arab Voice. It's Friday the 28th of January. My name is Hugo Goodridge and I'll be your host today coming to you from London. This week, producer Rosie McCabe will be exploring the Saudi takeover of Newcastle United Football Club, the Saudi Public Investment Fund and what it all means for the country. And then we'll speak with journalist Miriam Alsaya about the new film Amira and the surrounding controversy. But first, a quick look at the biggest headlines from the past week. Last Friday, more than 200 people were killed or wounded in an airstrike on a Yemeni prison and at least three children died in a separate bombardment as the long-running conflict suffered a dramatic escalation in violence. The Houthi rebels released gruesome video footage showing bodies in the rubble and mangled corpses from the prison attack which levelled buildings at the jail in the northern heartland of Sada. The attack comes after the Houthis took the seven-year war into a new phase by claiming a drone and missile attack on Abu Dhabi that killed three people the previous Monday. The United Arab Emirates, part of the Saudi-led coalition fighting the rebels, threatened reprisals. Aid workers said hospitals were overwhelmed in Sada after the prison attack, with one receiving 70 dead and 138 wounded, according to Doctors Without Borders. Norway said it would press the Taliban with, quote, tangible demands during talks in Oslo on Tuesday, the last day of the hardline Islamists' controversial first visit to Europe since returning to power in Afghanistan. A Taliban delegation led by Foreign Minister Amir Khan Muktaki was in Norway for talks focused on aid to Afghanistan. The humanitarian situation has rapidly deteriorated since the Taliban returned to power in August 2021 when international aid came to a sudden halt, worsening the plight of millions of people already suffering after several severe droughts. The Taliban delegation met members of Afghan civil society on Sunday, followed by Western diplomats on Monday. Secretary-General of the Norwegian Refugee Council, Jan Egeland, spoke to reporters. Well, I, I, I think we can trust them in the sense that they are the de facto authorities in the country and they see how the economy is collapsing at the moment and, and the enormous need to have the aid from the Western countries uh, much of that aid is, by the way, frozen. And the sanctions that are in place vis-à-vis Af- uh, Afghanistan is holding us back. We cannot save lives unless all of the sanctions are lifted. It's hurting the same civilians that the NATO countries spent hundreds of billions on defending up until uh, August. A British national held in Iran for four and a half years on spying charges vehemently denied by supporters, is beginning a hunger strike to protest his situation and lack of pressure to secure his release, his family announced last Saturday. 
Anoush Ashuri, 67, who holds British and Iranian passports, is one of over a dozen foreign nationals detained in Iran, who activists argue are being held as hostage in a bid to extract concessions from the West. Also in Iran, a court has sentenced a French man to eight years in prison on spying charges, his family and Paris-based lawyer said Tuesday. Benjamin Breer is the only Western detainee known to be currently held in Iran who does not also hold an Iranian passport. He was given an additional eight-month sentence for propaganda against Iran's Islamic system, his lawyer Philippe Verlant said in a statement. Briere was arrested in May 2020 after taking pictures in a national park with a recreational drone and is currently on hunger strike. The Jordanian army said Thursday it had killed 27 drug smugglers in a clash as they tried to enter the kingdom from Syria. The report on the army's website said it had thwarted several suspected attempts to smuggle drugs into Jordan from Syria and that large quantities of narcotics were seized in separate interventions that also left several people wounded. Earlier this month, the military said an officer was killed in a shootout with smugglers along the porous border it shares with southern Syria. Northeastern Syria was rocked by violence this week when Islamic State fighters attacked a prison in Hasaka. The New Arab's Levant correspondent, Will Christou, sent us this report. On January 20th, the so-called Islamic State carried out an attack on the largest prison in northeast Syria. The attack was the largest and most ambitious operation carried out by the group since the defeat of its self-titled caliphate in March 2019, with analysts suggesting that it could be a signal that the group is regaining strength. The attack lasted for seven days and involved upwards of 300 fighters. Initial casualty counts suggest 200 dead and many more wounded but that number is expected to go up. The attack was obviously pre-planned and well-coordinated, with fighters using car bombs outside of the prison walls and inmates taking weapons from prison guards to stage a riot and eventually occupy the prison. The attack culminated with members of the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces surrounding the prison while inmates used nearly 850 minors as human shields from within the prison. The SDF claims it has rescued all of the miners used as hostages, but rights groups have yet to comment. The attack not only brings up questions about the group's capabilities in Syria and Iraq, but also about the international community's willingness to help the fledgling Kurdish authority to deal with the remnants of the so-called Islamic State. Will Christou ending that report. For complete coverage and in-depth analysis of these stories and more, head over to the New Arabs website. So we're just happy to see our our team doing well and I think it's wrong that a lot of people are making Newcastle fans kind of feel ashamed of supporting their football club. It was one of the most controversial sports stories from 2021. The Saudi-led takeover of Newcastle United. Finally, the English football club was freed from the clutches of previous owner, British billionaire Mike Ashley. In October last year, It was bought by a consortium that included Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, the PIF, one of the world's largest sovereign wealth funds. Newcastle fans rejoiced 
at the £305 million deal. At last, their beloved club, long neglected and languishing in the bottom of the Premier League, would be a serious competitor. Currently, the Magpies are enjoying a week-long, quote, warm-weather training camp, end quote, in Saudi Arabia. This is a chance to train, says manager Eddie Howe, and get to know each other in a different environment. However, human rights groups have voiced serious concerns. Saudi Arabia's poor human rights record, it seems, is being ignored. Amnesty International accused the kingdom of, quote, sports washing, of using the purchase as a distraction from the autocratic regime and crackdown on dissenting voices. The football pitch, as ever, became a theatre for much larger political and philosophical questions. So, why did Saudi Arabia decide to invest millions in a football club in the north of England? And what are the consequences of this deal on the club, on the city and on the kingdom? Things were just at a halt, nothing was really happening. I think the Premier League were dragging out the process. This is Holly Blades, a devoted Newcastle United supporter. Just really slowing things down. It had been around 18 months of waiting before we actually got the deal initially completed. So it was a long time. And um, so as a fan, I didn't want to sit there. This deal, as Holly explains, was a long time in the making. To understand how it all started, we need to go back to the beginning. Aboard a multi-million pound mega yacht, the Serene, floating in the Red Sea. Picture a scene from a James Bond movie, only fewer martinis and a lot more money. It's October 2019, and aboard this luxury Saudi-owned ship is Amanda Stavely. Amanda is a shrewd businesswoman who has built a career on bringing golf money to the UK. She was involved in the 2008 takeover of English football club Manchester City by Sheikh Mansour, a member of Abu Dhabi's royal family. Newcastle fan Holly has met Amanda and speaks very, very highly of her. Definitely, when I met her, I realised she's a lot more down-to-earth. Like, she just seems like a, a normal person. Um, very kind of proud of the fact that she's from the north of England, not too far from Newcastle, actually. And she just kind of spoke like any other fan would. I think that was just amazing because it literally felt like she was a Newcastle fan. That wanted... After attending a Newcastle game in 2017, Amanda said she fell in love with the club. Unable to close an ownership deal alone, she decided to pitch the idea of a Newcastle buyout aboard the Serene to Yasser Arumayan, the governor of Saudi Arabia's $450 billion sovereign wealth fund, the IPF. So Yasser was a longtime banker in Saudi Arabia. And if, you, if MBS hadn't risen to power, he would probably continue to be like a banker that isn't on the global map. This is Bradley Hope, a longtime journalist who previously worked at the Wall Street Journal. He co-authored a book called Blood and Oil, Mohammed bin Salman's ruthless quest for global power. When Bradley says MBS, he's talking about Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and the kingdom's de facto ruler. You know, but MBS was in his rise to power. He really was interested in business, finance, things like that. So he surrounded himself with this kind of coterie of advisors from that world. And some of them were in Saudi. They were close by, you know, and this was one of them. So it was, it's a very, it was a kind of very lucky thing for Yasser to kind of get connected to MBS. And, and Yasser has been a, a kind of globetrotting ambassador of MBS. You know, going to- Yasser, who has been pictured multiple times, draped in a Newcastle United scarf next to Amanda, has been the front-facing Saudi broker on this deal. A known lover of the sport golf, he has played a central part in building Saudi Arabia's sporting empire, which includes sponsoring major golf tournaments and hosting F1 races. Closing the Newcastle deal, however, was not an easy putt for Yasser or Amanda. 
there were a number of obstacles. One was negotiating Newcastle's previous owner, Mike Ashley. I've only ever known Mike Ashley, so he owned the football club for 14 years and it was a very unenjoyable experience. It wasn't nice for anyone. He made many, many bad decisions. I think it was a poisonous and toxic regime that never learned from its mistakes. By April 2020, the takeover was agreed with Ashley, who had wanted to sell the club for over 10 years at this point. However, there were a number of factors prolonging the process. The Saudi-led consortium needed to pass the hurdles set by the English Premier League. The Gulf state had to satisfy the league's owners and directors test. This is a set of requirements that, if not met, prohibits an individual from becoming an owner or director of a club. They include, quote, criminal convictions for a wide range of offences, end quote, as well as breaches of key football regulations. This, for the Saudis, was problematic. Firstly, there were a number of human rights concerns surrounding the kingdom. Chief among them, the murder of journalist and outspoken critic Jamal Khashoggi, in addition to the numerous domestic human rights violations against women and the LGBTQI community. Ordered by the state. It's a state killing. And as such, it is important that the state of Saudi Arabia be held accountable. So far, there has been no move on the part of the international community to treat the execution of Mr. Khashoggi as something that was sponsored, incited, ordered by the state. Secondly, there was also Saudi Arabia's alleged involvement in BLQ, a pirate TV network that streamed football events, which Qatar-based broadcaster BN Sports had spent billions to acquire. Following Donald Trump's election defeat, Saudi Arabia announced an end to its blockade of Qatar. This led to a thawing of relationships in the Gulf during 2021. Saudi officials lifted the ban on BN Sports and said they would settle legal cases related to the alleged television piracy. What followed was a series of, quote, constructive talks between Amanda Yasser and Premier League chairman Gary Hoffman. The Premier League released the following statement. Following the completion of the Premier League's owners and directors test, the club has been sold to the consortium with immediate effect. The Premier League has now received legally binding assurances that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia will not control Newcastle United Football Club. All parties are pleased to have concluded this process which gives certainty and clarity to Newcastle United Football Club and their fans. There have been few public details about these, quote, assurances, end quote. Nevertheless, by October 2021, the dotted lines were inked. Saudi Arabia's PIF owned 80% of Newcastle United, while 10% went to the Rubin brothers, among the richest businessmen in Britain, and the other 10% to Amanda. Goodbye, Mike Ashley. So to get rid of him was a dream, but then also to get in almost the perfect owners, of you, if you like, in the sense that they'll bring a lot of wealth to the football club and allow us to challenge and compete because, you know, football is a very money-orientated sport these days, I think it's fair to say. That was also, of course, a big pull factor because who doesn't want to see their team doing well and competing? So that's how it all happened, part one. The next question, part two, is what does this all mean, both on and off the pitch? How will a gigantic influx of cash alter the beloved Premier League? Can we trust the legally binding assurances that the Saudi state will not be involved in Newcastle United? And how can the kingdom be held accountable for allegations of human rights abuse now they are embedded in one of the world's most treasured sports? 
So I think that the responsibility lies solely with the Premier League. Of course, they carry out their own tests, which should be sufficient in making sure that they're capable of owning a football club and running things correctly. Newcastle fans I spoke to were very clear. They didn't decide to bring in the Saudis and believe they should not be the arbiters of foreign policy. The takeover is the natural conclusion of forces that have been at play for a long time. Football is about money. Just look at what happened to Manchester City. The football club has won the Premier League multiple times since its 2008 takeover and currently sits top of the table. Conversely, Newcastle is 18th out of 20. So we're just happy to see our, our team doing well and I think it's wrong that a lot of people are making Newcastle fans kind of feel ashamed of supporting their football club because for me, I've supported Newcastle. I've been going to games since I was around four years old. Why should I now feel like that's wrong because of who owns the club? I don't think that's correct whatsoever. Holly and other fans also emphasise how this deal could help the city by making it an attractive place for investment. It could alleviate poverty in the local area, lead to better housing and more employment opportunities. Again, they said, look at Manchester's development in recent years. It was the Premier League, I was told repeatedly, that ultimately gave the deal the green light. However, not everyone was as ready to be convinced by the league's assurances. We think they're owners in direct test. We've had a legal analysis from uh, human rights and business specialist QC. This is Felix Jenkins, head of priority campaigns at Amnesty UK. And you know, we sent that we sent this to the Premier League, and we've spoken to them about it. The owners and directors test has a uh, a gap in it that you could drive a bus through, which essentially says whether or not the owner of a club has been in, like, implicated in crimes against humanity, crimes against international humanitarian law. There's no exclusion at the moment for an individual like that. So an individual could be excluded from owning a Premier League club on, from having committed fraud or for owning another Premier League club, but not if they're directly implicated in war crimes or the murder of a journalist. So This isn't really about Newcastle, Felix told me. It's about the power of the Premier League. It's actually quite, it's quite important to sort of take Newcastle as a place almost out of the out of the context because buying into the Premier League is buying essentially a global uh, broadcasting right by being able to beam messages into the homes of people that watch the Premier League in, in pretty much, I think, every country and territory in the world, more or less. And so it gives them an opportunity to get that Saudi branding, that Saudi messaging um, onto the kit, into the ground. And if Newcastle do well, then that kind of link of success between the Saudi royal family and, and Newcastle becomes one that does do that, you know, creates that positive headline. So that... Amnesty agreed that fans do not bear responsibility for the takeover. But, Felix added, this doesn't mean football supporters should ignore what's happening in Saudi Arabia. So we've really actually maintained throughout that the fans have no responsibility. So this is a decision which was made by Mike Ashley and approved by the Premier League. Um, so, you know, those are the decision makers in this takeover. And the responsibility shouldn't fall to Newcastle fans. What we would say and what we have said all the way through is what we think is happening. So we think this is about sports washing. So we've been making that clear and we hope that Newcastle fans have kind of heard that and understood it. And we've said, look, this is your club. These are your owners. You know, you're, they're passionate, dedicated fans. Make yourselves aware of who they are. Like find out who Mohammed bin Salman is, look into the human rights situation in Saudi Arabia and then make, make your own decisions about whether or not it's something that you want to start talking about. So, Mohammed bin Salman is a permanent fixture in headlines regarding the Middle East. I asked Bradley to tell me a little about his character. He, he doesn't have a taste for politics in the traditional sense. Like, 
I, you never get the impression that he's particularly interested in discussing the Palestinian issue. But on the other hand, if you start talking to him about Netflix and streaming and electric cars and things like that, then suddenly you've got... MBS is the son of King Salman, the former governor of Riyadh, who has ruled over Saudi Arabia since 2015. One thing that I learned from reporting the book with Justin is that there's a lot more of a rationale behind his actions than people give him credit for, even if the actions are, you know, abominable, or even if the rationale is crazy. But there's always kind of a rationale behind it. The 36-year-old's rise to power was by no means a sure bet. Given his large family, the calculating businessman had to wrestle his way to the top through cunning, ruthlessness, and at times, wiping out the opposition. MBS is now Saudi Arabia's crown prince, deputy prime minister, minister of defense, and the chairman of the PIF. That the PIF is separate from the government is completely nonsensical. Like, it, it just makes no sense whatsoever. So the PIF was a sort of dusty old institution in Saudi Arabia by the time MBS came to power. It was just a place where they put these government holdings of certain things, like the Saudi government owns parts of banks and other things. And it's 100% his baby, you know. He selected it, he rose it up, he created the ambitions and the mandate for it. It's a, you know, there was a, there was a quote somewhere, I forget where it's from, but like in the 21st century, you don't need an army, you need a sovereign wealth fund. You know, like this is a key tool in his arsenal. It's the thing that bought the stake in Uber and, and other things that are well known. So, and, and he, you can be sure that he has a huge insight into everything it does all the time. And that ultimately it reflects his own interests and ambitions. You know? I also asked Bradley about how the Newcastle deal fits with the wider political and economic ambitions of Saudi Arabia. He said the deal was a quirk. These Gulf states, especially Saudi, are addicted to these consultants from McKinsey and Boston Consulting. I don't think this came out of a report then led to an action. I think it was more like a deal that emerged and they're now trying to fit it into the sports strategy. But in general, you know, a country like Saudi Arabia is really interested in becoming known as a normal country, not like a quirky country or a country that has crazy rules that, that are scary for people to visit. So, you know, these kind of more everyday brands that people interact with and that they know it's Saudi Arabia and, they, and it's a good way to build goodwill. Bradley said the takeover probably wouldn't be that advantageous to Saudi Arabia. The kingdom, having spent billions abroad, is trying to encourage more investment into the country. A prime example is the development of Neom, a futuristic megacity built entirely from scratch. Spawned from the imagination of MBS, Neom was dreamt up as a place for Saudis and foreigners to come for entertainment and tourism, curbing the outflow of cash. Saudi Arabia is a great country, you know, full of uh, great people and great attractions. We just need to improve our regulations and our, our system and, and, and open up. And this is what uh, we have been doing so far with uh, a great vision, 2030 vision. Primarily, we want to stop the, the leakage. The people uh, live in Saudi Arabia and travel to the region to enjoy in the weekend or in the short breaks. And then we will uh, open up uh, many attractions in Saudi Arabia to attract international visitors. In an article for Chatham House, Middle East expert and associate fellow Neil Quilliam said, quote, Saudi Arabia really needs to empower its people and capitalize upon its youth dividend. His article argued that investing in education and training and skills should be a priority. The kingdom should not, the piece said, follow, quote, the crowd to buy football clubs without rhyme or reason, end quote. 
Anecdotally, we reached out to Saudis to ask them about the takeover. The answer? It hasn't really come up at all. However, journalist Bradley believes there could be a silver lining. Given the additional media attention, the deal could have a positive impact on the kingdom's behaviour and diplomatic relations moving forward. This actually could be a positive force to pressure Saudi Arabia not to do things that are out of the norm with the rest of the world. The more they're enmeshed in things like that, where they have an actual interaction with everyday people, fans, the less likely they'll be to do something that's considered outrageous, like the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, for example. I think this kind of thing actually could be advantageous to the rest of the world rather than the other way around. But ultimately, a lot is still to play for. Will Saudi money save Newcastle United from relegation this season? Is this a joyful new beginning for the North England club? Or has Newcastle just moved from one loathed owner to the next regime? When it premiered at the Venice International Film Festival last year, Amira received generally positive reviews. But since then, the film has been subjected to a sea of controversy and anger. We're joined by Miriam Asaya Ibrahim to guide us through. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Hugo. Uh, Miriam, what's the film all about? Amira tells the coming-of-age story of a 17-year-old Palestinian girl. Her father, an anti-Israeli freedom fighter, has been sentenced to imprison. So, to carry on his family line, he has his poem smuggled out of jail. However, the eponymous uh, Amira, played by Palestinian Jordanian actress Tara Boud, and learns that her father is infertile, and that his smuggled poem belongs to an Israeli prison guard. Incredibly, the movie is partly based on true events, where the controversy and acrimony begins. Since 2012, some 71 poem samples have been secretly taken from the prisons, to Gaza and to the West Bank, to the IVF centres. And why is the subject matter of the film so controversial? Um, First, the movie talks about the main point, which is Palestinian prisoners. Although he is a hero for the Palestinians, he is a terrorist in the Israelis. So without mentioning that prisoners need human rights, are protected by international law. For decades, the United Kingdom and the U.S. presence have allowed conjugal visits in prison between life partners, so yet alleged terrorists are deprived of the human right in Israel. The Palestinian activists said that the Israel's blanket ban on conjugal visits is considered a a genocidal policy, and the Jordanian-made film cheapens this struggle dishonoring a holy and a valued resistance concept in the process. Since this practice only started a decade ago, this further damages. Again, that's why Palestinians considered themselves freeing the sperm while Israeli authorities considered it a crime by smuggling it. And the international law activists have no comment on the process. What's been the response of Palestinian activists 
to the practice of smuggling sperm? They consider that the whole process of freeing the sperm from prison is reviving the soul of resistance for the prisoners and his family. However, ending the bloodline does not just apply to the prisoner. It affects all Palestinians and infringes on their human rights. Lots of activists consider the conjugal visits ban as an organized intended genocide. Though, freeing the sperm is considered a peaceful objection against the ban and king of a holy resistance by Palestinians, no activist in any political or humanitarian case will accept dishonoring his dispute. The film Amira portrayed a, a particular image of sperm smuggling. What's the reality for Palestinians engaging in the practice? 71 sperm samples have been secretly taken from prisoners in Gaza and the West Bank to IVF centres. 10 vials from Gaza and 61 from the West Bank. Activists said that to 99 free children had been born by artificial insemination in this way. Each kid has his own story. They designed a plan according to a sophisticated tool to free the sperm, according to sperm cryopreservation protocol. And of course, this was done according to strict Sharia regulations. They asked in advance the Islamic scholars if Muslim women could be pregnant this way. Of course, it looks lots of effort to explain to a conservative community how could a woman get pregnant in that way. The Palestinian prisoners, as a community, have every right to continue their bloodline. But on the individual level, we have to consider the wife who loved her husband and wants to be a mother to a son or a daughter from their flesh and blood. This is a basic of human rights. And what's the status of the film now? Is it is it being screened? Amira received warm applause from an international audience of critics in Venice. But later, the Jordanian Royal Film Commission said it had decided to stop presenting Amira to represent Jordan at the Oscars. The activist pressure has influenced Jordan's decision to pull the movie from the Academy Awards. Activists and Jordanian lawyers' unions are planning to get the Marcus of Amira to be sued. Thank you for joining us, Miriam. Thanks, Hugo. Uh, head over to the New Arabs website and you can read Miriam's in-depth into the film Amira in full. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was produced by me, Hugo Goodridge, and Rosie McCabe, with additional help from Miriam El Sayer, Safa Amma, and Will Christou. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back in two weeks' time. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region.